song in the chorus this morning. I need thee every hour. Let's turn around and fellowship one with another. Be sure to get out of your seat and welcome our visitors today.
Page 550, He Lives. Let's set our ushers come forward to receive our offering, and as they do so, uh, let me encourage those that are visiting with us today to take just a moment and fill out a visitor's card. If you uh, came in this morning, you may have been given a bulletin or one of the uh, little welcome brochures. There's cards in there that you can use. If not, there is cards in the back of the pews. But uh, we want to get to know you, and we want you to get to know us, and we'd like to send you some information this week about the church, but we appreciate all of you that are visiting with us this morning. Just a couple of things let me make mention. The fellas uh, justified will be singing this afternoon at Tremont Baptist Church. That's downtown near Veterans Bridge, and uh, right there, turn right at Town and Country, and down on churches on Tremont Street. But they'll be singing at 1230, right after services here, so... Uh, you may want to go down for their homecoming service. I believe it is at Tremont Baptist Church. Also want to make mention, I want some of you to be praying about something, and uh, something that I've been praying about and uh, seeking the Lord about and how we could reach out into our community and, and reach uh, a needy area into our community. As you know, there are many. I've noticed over the past two, th two or three years the number of Spanish folks that are moving into our area and we want to do something, been praying about doing something to reach them in some way to reach out to them and what kind of ministry, how to get started with them and different things like that. And uh, we have someone that's going to come in starting this afternoon on Sunday afternoons from 4.30 to 6 o'clock that's going to be teaching English classes. And these are mostly the Spanish. They don't even speak English. If they do, it's very little. And so uh, this is way maybe we can uh, begin to have an open door to begin to reach 
many of the Spanish folks in the neighborhood. But uh, some of you, you speak Spanish and you've worked with Spanish through the years. I know some of you have been on mission fields and different things like this. This might be something that you'd want to get involved in. When, if you'd be interested in this, I would encourage you just to uh, be in the Family Life Center at 430. And again, we have someone that's coming in that is going to be teaching English classes. And there'll be different levels of English classes and different things like this. But this is an opportunity for us to get them here and then to be able to use means to share the gospel with them. So I want some of you to pray about this, and this may lead into a ministry that we can have in maybe a Sunday school class or something like this, but uh, that's going to be on Sunday afternoons at 4.30. And uh, so I want you, some of you pray about that. You've been praying about how the Lord could use you. This could be a great opportunity. And anyway, that's what we're here for. God has put us here in this community, and God has put us on this earth to reach out to the people that are around us, and it doesn't matter to me whether a person's green or blue or purple, black or white. They're all just folks that need the Lord, and we want to do everything we can to reach folks. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so, but pray about this. It'll be a great opportunity because more and more in this country, the mission field is coming to us, and we don't want to miss the opportunity that God has given us. So pray about this. Let's pray, and you give today. Be faithful in your giving. Every once in a while we get special gifts, and I appreciate all of you do. Someone gave me a check for $2,000 this morning to go into the Hamilton Scholarship Fund. This helps our students that go to Bible schools. We appreciate this. And also the gift to Brother Jim Ammons for $500 to help with Bibles. And so we praise the Lord for all the things that you do, special things that you do, and the Lord will bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the opportunities that, Lord, you bring to us. We know that we're to go out into all the world and to reach people with the gospel. But Lord, not only in our going, many times you bring the opportunity right at our doorstep. And so we ask you to help us, Lord, to reach out and win folks to Christ. Bless the offering now, and I pray you continue to open our hearts up to what you have for us in this service. In Jesus' name, amen.
To simply carry on Through life's tolls and tests In the worst and best I'm not ever left alone Always right beside me You hear me when I pray Since I first began You've been my dearest friend I give you all the
and I do give him thanks. Listen to the song that's been requested, asked by Rick and others for us to sing. Listen to the ears of someone that's never heard before. Because this is a song that uh, was so instrumental in leading my little Jewish stepfather to the Lord. And every time we sing it, I listen through the ears of a pagan or someone who's never heard. It's the gospel and how I love him for his mercy and for his grace. And I do give him thanks. Sunshine, my all in all. 
I want you to take your Bible and find the book of 1 Samuel 7, and also want you to get your hymn book and turn to hymn 35. Think about what they were singing. There are some songs that are just pretty. You really enjoy them. They're good songs. The melody makes them good songs. Uh, but uh, there are some songs that come along once in a while that are very, very special. And the song they just sung is, to me, is one of those songs because of what it says. That is a song that is jam-packed with truth. A great song. Great song. And there's another great song that I want to point you to in just a moment. But I want you to open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And there's one verse of Scripture that I want to look at this morning. It's a verse of Scripture that has interested me for a number of years. And it's been on my heart for some weeks now, but I just never really could uh, put together the thoughts that I felt that I should from the passage until this week. But I want you to stand as we honor the reading of His Word. And I want to read to you one verse, and then we'll look at it today in its context. And that's verse 12. And I want us to think this morning on this thought. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Notice verse 12, 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. The Bible said, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizbah and Shin, and he called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Now let me read that to you again. Samuel took a stone, set it between Mizbah and Shin, and he called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Thank you. you. may be seated. Let's pray. And this morning I want us to think about the thought, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Let's pray and then the message this morning from the Word of God. Father, we are grateful today that there was that moment that you came down from your glory, and Lord, that you laid aside the glory that you had inhabited from eternity past, and you robed yourself in human flesh. And Father, what a momentous moment it was in history when Jesus Christ was born. For the Creator, as they have just sung, became our Savior. And Father, we are here today and we are able to rejoice and we're able to worship you because of what you've done for us. And indeed, Lord, we love you. We can't help but love you. And we praise you for all that you've done. Now, Father, we bring the message before you this morning, the thoughts that you have put into my heart and into my mind for this hour. And we ask you, Lord, that you might anoint them and that you might use them and bless them today to every heart. Meet us today. Bring to pass, Lord, the very things we'll talk about and may they become realities in our life in this service. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you because it is in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things, amen. When I talk about great songs, in my opinion, and this is by far my favorite hymn. Now, I love the great hymns and love many different songs and love all kinds of music and whatever, but I have to say my favorite hymn, bar none, is Robert Robinson's hymn, Come Thou Fount. In fact, I had you turn to it in your book. I believe it's page 35. Is that right? Page 35 in your hymn book. And I want you to look at it for just a moment. It's a great song, and I love it. I love it, one, because of its melody, the tune behind it. But I love it because of the words in it. And of all hymns I've ever heard, apart from uh, 
uh, His Wondrous Cross and by Isaac Watts. This song here to me has some of the most soul-gripping, soul-stirring words of any hymn that I've ever read. For example, you look at stanza one. He writes, Come thou fount of every blessing. And this next statement has always fascinated me and touched my heart. He says, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Now that's a great thought. And I want the Lord to tune my heart to sing His grace. I want Him to so work on my heart that that which occupies my heart is what He's done for me and what He can do for me. But we ought to say, Lord, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. I love this next song. We just sung about mercy. But he talks about streams of mercy never ceasing. Aren't you glad the mercy of God never ceases? What a wonderful thought. But then he says, all of these things that God has done for us calls for songs of loudest praise. When you think about God's mercy in your life, if there's anything you ought to give praise to God for, it's His mercy in your life. And the loudest praise we ought to give to God is because of those streams of mercy that never cease. And he says, teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. And I would submit unto you this morning, just that stanza alone, there's a lot of things just to think about and chew on. And, and it's obvious this is a man that had experienced God in his life and he's writing some wonderful things. But it is the second stanza this morning that I am particularly interested in. Many of the modern versions have changed the song just a little bit. Most of the modern versions, I believe it's the same way in, in our hymn book this morning. But you find these words, Here I raise to thee an altar, hither by thy help I am come. That's the modern version. The original version goes like this. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. It is those first two lines, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. And again in your book, it is here I raise to thee an altar. But uh, I won't encourage this, but if you wanted to write through that in your songbook, write down Ebenezer there. That's what the original version is. That interests me this morning. For you see, the thought behind Robert Robinson's words comes from our text in 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. We read it a moment ago. The Bible said that Samuel took a stone, and he set it between Mizpah and Shin, and he called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped me. Now, the Bible tells us that Samuel took a stone. And the Bible said that he erected this stone as a memorial stone between a place called Mizpah and a place called Shin. Now, we don't know exactly where he's talking about and what the Scripture, where the Scripture is speaking of. It is much debated and very, very uncertain. There's a couple of places in the Holy Land called Mizpah, one in Gilead, one down in Moab. And who, where this place called Shin is, no one is really certain. But Mizpah is a word that simply means a watchtower or a lookout. And it was often used to speak of a place of safety or a place of security. And the word Shin literally means a tooth. And it is commonly believed that this was a crag or a tooth-shaped hill. And again, we don't know exactly where it is. One writer I was reading this week said it was about five miles south of Jerusalem where all the tension and fighting has been going on. But nonetheless, 
There was a time that Samuel, between this place called Mizpah, a place of security, and this tooth-shaped hill or crag called Shin, he set up a stone, a memorial stone. And tradition tells us it was just merely a rock, nothing fancy about it, just set up a big rock. Maybe there's a lot rock laying out there in the field or the plain. But he set that rock up, and tradition tells us they engraved the word Ebenezer on the side of it, and that was the extent of it. But the Bible tells us that he set up what he called an Ebenezer stone. Thinking about memorials, I was reading about this fellow in New York that erected an unusual marker back during the bicentennial celebration in this country. And there was so much going on, he was so fed up of hearing all the stuff about the bicentennial celebration that he set up this uh, marker with this plaque on it, and he began with the letters, the capital letters, N-O-N, non. And then below it he had these words, non, historical marker. On this spot, February the 29th, 1776, absolutely nothing happened. Well, I want you to know that in 1 Samuel 7, that when, um, when Samuel set up this memorial stone, he set this memorial stone up because of what happened. And he set it up because of what happened between Mizpah and Shem. So what I want to do this morning is just point out to you what happened and why he set up this Ebenezer stone and what occurred for him to set the stone up. I want to point out three things from the story today that happened between Mizpah and Shem that was marked by an Ebenezer stone. Well, the first thing that I want to point out is this. It was a place of repentance. When you look at this place here that Samuel set up his Ebenezer stone, you find that it was a place of repentance. Go back and look in verse 1 and verse 2. The Bible said, And the men of Kerjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kerjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now the background of the story in 1 Samuel 7 takes us back about 21 years before. Takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I would encourage you to go back sometime and read 1 Samuel 4 and read the, de read the chapter more in detail to learn a little bit about the background. But it takes us back about 21 years, and it takes us back to the time, a tragic time in Israel's history. It takes us back to that tragic day when the Philistines took the ark of the Lord. It takes us back to when the Philistines invaded the holy city and the holy place, and they stole the ark of the covenant. Not only was the ark of the covenant stolen, but you also read that the children of Israel suffered a great defeat. I believe it was somewhere around 4,000 men that were slaughtered on that particular day. And so for 20-some years, about 20 years now, the ark of God has not been in its rightful place. Now, when you come to chapter 7, you find in verse 1 and 2 that the process of bringing the ark back has begun. The Philistines have surrendered the ark. The ark has once again been taken, and they're in the process of bringing the ark back. It would be many years before it ever get to Jerusalem again, but they're in the process now of bringing the ark back and putting it in its rightful place. That is the background. Now, understanding the background of what's going on in 1 Samuel 7, I want you to notice two things about the people here. 
Understanding what had occurred and how all these events are following what had occurred, notice two things about the people in chapter 7. Notice, first of all, the condition of the people. The condition of the people. And you find the condition of the people made clear in verse 3 when Samuel gave them this charge. The Bible said in verse 3, Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you, if ye do return unto the Lord with all of your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Asheroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now there's one word in verse 3 that reveals the condition of the people, and that is the word return. Samuel said, if you do return unto the Lord. That word return simply means to go back. It means to go back to a starting point. To put it in a very simple language, the children of Israel were away from God. And here is the charge of Samuel to the children of Israel. I want you to go back where you used to be. I want you to go back where you first started. There was a time they had lived for God. There was a time they had served God. There was a time they had honored God in their life, but they had got away from God. They had turned from the Lord, and they had begun to serve other gods. But the charge of Samuel to the children of Israel was this. I want you to go back. I want you to return. I want you to get back where you started and get back to where you're living for God and serving God, and you're right with the Lord. So what you find here is a condition of people being away from God. Again, you take the matter of the ark being taken in chapter 4. You don't know why the ark of God was taken? Why the Philistines had the ability to take the ark in the first place? I'll tell you why. The people were away from God. There was sin in their life. They were displeasing to God. And when the ark of God was taken, the seriousness of that act is found when one of the daughter-in-laws of Eli gave birth to a child, and she gave that child a very unusual name. She named that boy Ichabod, which means the glory hath departed. The glory hath departed. In other words, because of the people of God's sin, the glory departed. Because they were away from God, the presence of God was no all through these years without the glory of God. You find them all through these years without the presence of God. And you find them all through these years without the blessings of God. Simply put, they were a people that were away from God. May I say to you this morning, the case is always the same. The story is always the same. And that when somebody is away from God and out of fellowship with God, they're out of the place where God can bless them. They're out of the place where the presence of God can be enjoyed and the blessings of God can be experienced. It may be that in this room today there is somebody. That there was a time in your life that you trusted Christ as your Savior. There was a time in your life when you were saved by the grace of God. And you began to go to church and you, began, you were in church and you began to live for God and try your best to live the way you ought to live. Something's happened down through the years. You're away from God today. And it may be sitting in this very room. There is somebody that is not living for God. Somebody that has drifted from God. Somebody is a word we often use, backslid. You're not where you ought to be. You used to live for God. And you used to be in church. And you used to serve God. And you used to honor God in your life. But somewhere you've got away from God. I think about what Hosea 11 verse 7 said. And Hosea made this statement, or God made this statement to the prophet Hosea. He said, and my people are bent to backsliding from me. 
And the word bent there has, has carries the idea that was their tendency. You look at the history of Israel. They'd get right with God, live for God, then they'd get away from God. And then God would bring them back to him, and they'd live for God, then get away from God. And it was a story repeated over and over and over. And down through the years, I've seen that in so many lives. Somebody will come and get right with God and live for God for a little while, and it won't be but a matter of months, and they'll be away from God again. Be out of church, no longer serving God. Somewhere they'll come back, get right, serve God for a while, and drop out. They're, they're bent to backsliding. And there is a tendency to backsliding there. There was this problem with the children of Israel. Their condition was they were away from God. I remember reading an unusual story. It came out of the Virginia Medical Monthly, an article that was in the magazine a number of years ago. It told the story of a lady that literally grew backwards. And the doctor told the story and told her how she had grown normally, had married, had three children, and how life was normal for this mother until the husband and father died while the children were in high school. And when the father and the husband died, then the mother doubled her devotion to her children. She changed her clothes to those of a girl to 20, and she joined in her children's parties and fun. And in a few years, the children began to notice that as they were growing older, their mother was growing younger. And psychiatrists call it a personality regression, which means a person simply walking backwards. And usually people that have this problem, they'll stop going backward at a certain age, but not this particular woman. She slipped backward at the rate of one year for every three or four months that time went forward. And finally, although she was 61 years old, she acted and talked like a six-year-old. She was sent to a sanitarium where she insisted on wearing short dresses, playing with toys, and babbling like a child. And then she became like a three-year-old. She spilled her milk, crawled on the floor, and she cried, Mama. And backwards still at the age of one, she drank milk, curled up like a tiny baby. And finally, she went over the line and died. Now, I think of many this morning that have got a case of spiritual regression. They were once serving God. They were once living for God. And they were once honoring God in their life. But somewhere they began to go back. They turned from the Lord. They are away from God. Look at verse 2, the latter part of verse 2. I read the statement a moment ago. But the latter part of verse 2 said, The house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That word lamented is a word that talks about groaning. Here was a people that came before God mourning or groaning, you might say. Here's a people before God that are coming with a miserable heart. That word lamenting there, it carries the idea and it reveals the fact of how unhappy and how miserable these folks were. They were away from God. There had been a time they had walked in the glory. There had been a time they had lived for God and knew the presence of God and knew the blessings of God. But now they were away from God and they're unhappy and they're miserable. You know who some of the most unhappiest people in this world are? Are you listening to me this morning? Some of the most unhappy people in the world are people that are saved, but they're out of fellowship with God. Some of the most miserable people on this planet are people that one time lived for God and knew the blessings of God, but now they're out of fellowship with God. That's what Solomon said, Proverbs 14, 14. He said, the backslider shall be filled with his own ways. Solomon is simply stating there that backsliding has a way of catching up with a person. That a backslider's got his own ways, but somewhere he gets full of his own ways. And like Hosea, rather, Jeremiah said, O Lord, through our iniquities testify against us, and our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. 
The prophet Jeremiah and the nation of Israel said, our backslidings, they tell on us. Our emptiness, our misery, our unhappiness, they tell us that we're away from God. Again, some of the most unhappy people in this world are people that are away from God. I think of Robert Robinson. We read just a moment ago the song, the first stanza and second stanza of his hymn, Come Thou Fount. Robert Robinson, the author of that song, was saved in the ministry of George Whitfield. And he heard him preach one day on Matthew 3, 7 on the subject, The Wrath to Come. And on that Sunday, May 24, 1752, Robert Robinson was saved. And it was six years later that Robinson wrote the great hymn, Come Thou Found. But I think about the song, and there's a couple of lines in the song that were tragically prophetic in the life of Robert Robinson. And that is the lines, prone to wonder. Prone, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. See, Robert Robertson became a preacher of the gospel. And Robert Robertson became a pastor of a church. But there came a time in Robert Robertson's life that he got away from God. He would later testify that he began to neglect the things of God in his life and the things of the world began to draw him in. And he found himself away from God. And for a number of years, Robert Robinson was out of fellowship with God. And for a number of years, Robert Robinson was a backslider, as we would say. The story is told how one day he was traveling by stagecoach, and there was a lady that was a perfect stranger that was in the stagecoach with him. And she began to talk to him about what a blessing a certain hymn had been to her. And she began to read the hymn to it, and lo and behold, it was his own hymn, Come Thou Fount. He tried to change the subject, tried to get her to talk about something else, but she just kept talking about the hymn and what the hymn had meant to her and how the hymn had been a blessing to her. And finally, in tears, he, he said to this woman, he says, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago, and I'd give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. What was Robert Robertson saying? He's talking about a man being away from God and how unhappy that man is. Again, there may be someone sitting here today. You got saved one day. There's a time you were in church and you remember the joy and how happy you were and how excited you were when you first got saved and when you were living for God. But now those memories haunt you and your life now is so empty and there's such misery and unhappiness in your life. That's the condition of the people. They found themselves away from God. But I point out the second thing and hasten on. Not only do you see the condition of the people in the story, but you see the contrition of the people. There was their condition. He said, return. They were away from God. But you see their contrition beginning in verse 4. Verse 3, Samuel tells them, tells them to get right. Samuel tells them to return to the Lord. But look at the response in verse 4. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Asheroth and serve the Lord only. That was the response. Samuel said, get right with God. Samuel said, come back to God. Samuel said, you have backslid. Now come back. Verse 4 said, that's what they did. And Samuel, what did he do? He took a stone and set up a stone that he named Ebenezer. And he set that stone up in a place where the people got right. He set that stone up in a place of repentance where the people came back to God. This is what Jeremiah 3, 22 said. Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. You know what God's word is to you today? If you're here, now listen to me. If you are here in this building and you are not right with God, 
You are saved, but you are away from God. You're out of church. You're not living for God. They don't want you to listen to God's word to you today. What does God say to you? Same thing Samuel said to the children of Israel hundreds of years ago. God says unto you, he says to you, return ye back sliding children. That's God's word. God's saying to you today, this is the time that you return. This is the place that you get it right. This is the hour. This is the place. This is the time. This is the service that God said, I want you to come back and get it right with God. Now, here's the wonderful promise. God said, if you'll return, I'll heal your backslidings. You know what God was saying to them? God was saying, if you'll come back to me, I'll forgive you. Isn't that great? God is saying to them, I do not care how far you have been, how, how far you have gone. And I do not care how long you have been away. He said, if you'll come back, I will heal your backslidings. You want to say to them, I'll forgive you of your sins. I'm glad today. Listen to me. There may be someone here, and all you remember when you first got saved, and you remember how happy you were, but somewhere and for some reason, you got away from God, got out of church, got away from God, and you, you think of all those years, and you've lived for the devil, and you've not honored God in your life. Here's God's word to you, and here's God's promise. God said, if you come back, he'll forgive you. And I don't care what you've done, how far you've gone, God said that he will forgive you of your sins. You know what y'all say today? Lord, I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The paths of sin, too long I've trod. Now I'm coming home. It was a place of repentance. But look at something else I point out about the story. Not only was it a place of repentance, but second of all is a place of revival. For you see, the repentance was followed by revival. And when I look at the story here, I see both the effects of revival and the evidence of revival. There's a couple of characteristics of revival that I see in this story. For example, notice first of all, you see that the people of God were, re were moved. The people of God were moved. I want to give you a couple of definitions this morning about revival. I'm going to give you one in a moment, one now and one in just a moment. But let me give you a couple of definitions about revival. What do I mean when I talk about revival? When I say this was not only a place of repentance where the people came back to God, and when I say this was a place of revival, what do I mean it was a place of revival? Let me give you this definition. A writer by the name of G.J. Morgan, not G. Campbell Morgan, but G.J. Morgan, he defined revival as a reviving of humanity, strictly speaking, to the sense of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to reanimate the life of the believer. Let me say that again. He was saying, Morgan said that revival is a revival of humanity to the sense of God. There's a reanimation. There is a reviving. There is a restoring. Life is quickened again to a sense of God. What he's saying is that once again, God becomes real to the believer. That when revival comes, there is a great sense of God in the life of the believer. In other words, when revival comes, the people of God are stirred. The people of God are moved. Look at the story here. Notice how they were moved. Verse 6, the Bible said they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And you find them in verse 6 taking the things of God very seriously. For years they had ignored God. 
For years they had left God out of their life. For years they had lived their own lives and done their own thing and worshipped the gods of Asheroth and Balaam. And they had had no place for God. But now all of a sudden, God has become very important to their life. God has become front and center in their life. All of a sudden, there is a seriousness about the things of God. Look how they took the things of God seriously. Their communion with God they took seriously. The Bible said they poured out water. They drew water and they poured out water. You know what that was the expression of? It's an expression of the fact that they were so sorry for how they lived that they wanted to be able to cry buckets of tears to show God how sorry they were. But they knew they did not have the ability to cry buckets of tears. So symbolically, they would draw water and pour it out to say, Lord, this water we pour out is symbolic of how sorry we are for what we've done and how serious we are about serving you and being right with you and being in fellowship with you. You see, all of a sudden now, they're serious about being in fellowship with God. They not only took the communion with God seriously, they took their commitment to God seriously. So they not only poured out water, but verse 6 said, they begin to fast. Now, fasting is where you deprive yourself physically in order to have spiritual needs met. It's where you might say, I'm not going to eat today and I'm not going to meet a physical need in order that I might have a spiritual need met. It's an act of devotion. It's an act of commitment. It's an act of discipline on our part. You see, now they're taking their commitment to God seriously. They haven't had room for God, but now they want to be in fellowship with God, and they're committed to God. You notice how they took their condition before God seriously. They said in the latter part of verse 6, we have sinned against the Lord. They were saying, God, we don't want anything between me and you. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Lord, we want to be right. We don't want anything to be there. See, they're taking the things of God seriously. The things of God, eternal matters, have become very, very, very important to them. Look at verse 8. Children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he'll save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Now prayers become an important part of their life. They're saying to Samuel, Pray for us. Now they're serious about prayer. They're serious about getting things from God. They're serious about seeking God. Again, God is front and center in their lives. The things of God have become a priority. And I submit unto you this morning, that's what revival does. Whenever revival comes, the people of God are moved. When revival comes, there is awakening to the sense of God. God is not just a part of a person's life. He is preeminent in the life. And when revival comes and the people of God are stirred, the things of God become the most important things in their life. I've been reading recently about the revival of 1859 that came to Northern Ireland. And I've had opportunities to preach in some churches in January. I'm going to be in Ireland in January and preaching in churches there that actually came out of this revival. And in 1859, there was what they call the Ulster Revival. There was an unusual working of God during that particular year. And in one of the books entitled A Year of Grace, written by a William Gibson, he, he takes us from town to town to town to town and talks about uh, what God did. I think about one little place called Ballymead or Ballymead. He talks about the hand of God and he moved there. And I want you to listen to what he said about the working of God in the little town of Ballymead. He said, Christians found themselves being born upward in the current with scarce time for any feeling but the outpouring condition that a great revival had come at last. 
careless men were bowed in unaffected earnestness and sob like children. Languid believers were stirred up to unusual exertion. There was great earnestness with all. Mr. Gibson said when revival came, everybody got stirred about God. He said when revival came, there was an indifference among the people of God. God became important in their life. I think about the great awakening that came to this country in the mid-1700s. And I think about the little town in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I've been there on a couple occasions. And the very place where the seeds of the great awakening uh, began, and the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, he talks about in his book there, the narrative of surprising conversions. He describes the work of God in the town. He said, a great and earnest concern about the things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of town and among all persons of all degrees and all ages. The noise among the dry bones waxed louder and louder and all other talk but about spiritual and eternal things were soon thrown by. Edward said all people talked about was God. All they talked about was Jesus he said it didn't matter whether they were old or young. Wherever you go, if you go down Main Street, go down this street, go down this alley, and you met people, all they were told about what was God was doing. Now that is revival. Whenever revival comes, there is a moving of the people of God. They began to take the things of God seriously. Well, look at something else in the story characteristic of revival not only were the people of God moved but second of all the power of God was manifested let me give you another definition of revival author Wallace in his book the day of thy power defined revival as God revealing himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power it is such a manifest working of God that human personalities are overshadowed, human programs abandoned. It is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. It is the Lord making bare His holy arm and working in extraordinary power on saint and sinner. You know what Wallace was saying revival was? Revival, Wallace said, is when God manifests His power. It's when God begins to do extraordinary things. It is when the power of God is manifested in an irresistible way. It is when God shows himself to be God. That's revival. You know what happens when revival comes? Not only will the people of God be moved. I mean, listen, it won't be a matter, should I serve God, should I do this? When revival comes, people want to serve God. People want to get, uh, do something for God. They're stirred about the things of God. And not only that, God manifests his power. Look in verse 10. The Bible said in Samuel, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. Now, here's what's so interesting. On this very spot, the very same spot, 20 years ago, they had been defeated. Now, 20 years later, they are victorious. 20 years ago, the Philistines had routed them. 20 years later, they rout the Philistines. Now, what made the difference? I'll tell you what it was. God manifested His power. God intervened. God's presence was so real. It was like thunder and a crashing in the sky. And the Philistines were so confused, they fled in fear. He was God making His power known. Now, you listen to me this morning. 
Whenever revival comes, that's what happens. When revival comes, it's not a matter of God's power being a theoretical matter. When revival comes, it becomes an experiential matter. I mentioned the Great Awakening a moment ago, and there are many, many examples that I could draw from that moving of God in this country in the mid-1700s to demonstrate the power of God. But I think of one occasion, again, associated with Jonathan Edwards. It happened in a little town called Enfield, Connecticut. I've been there. I've stood on the very spot. There is a rock there, just like an Ebenezer stone, marking the spot where this very thing happened. But Jonathan Edwards was preaching one night from Deuteronomy 32, and he's preaching his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sermon, Edwards compared the sinner with being some kind of spider or some insect suspended over flames. He said to him that night, he said, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. He said, you're like a spider hanging on a web, and all around there are flames. At any moment, that flame could touch that web there, and you could hurl out into eternity. Most unusual thing happened in that service. The power of God fell. And the power of God was so manifest in that service that people unconsciously grasped the pillars and the pews to keep from sliding into hell. People all over the building began to cry out for God to have mercy because they thought they were going to hell at that very moment. Even one of the ministers reached up and got him by the coattail and said, Mr. Edwards, does not, is God, not God, a God of mercy? Power of God was so real. I'm going to tell you something. That's what happens when revival comes. During revival, the people of God are moved and the power of God is, is, is manifested. Now that's where Samuel set up a stone. He set up a stone at the very place that God sent revival. He set up a stone in the very place that God's power was manifested. The repentance of the people was followed by the revival of the people. And the presence of God was made known. That was the place that he set the stone up. A third and a final thing, then I'll draw it all to a conclusion. Are you with me now? Say amen. First of all, it was a place of repentance. He set up an Ebenezer stone in the place that the people got right. Second of all, it was a place of revival. He set up an Ebenezer stone in the place that revival came. And thirdly, he set up an Ebenezer stone in a place, and it was a place of remembrance. Look at verse 12 again in our text. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin, and he called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. He set up a memorial stone, called it Ebenezer, which simply means a stone of help. That's what Ebenezer means. It's, in fact, the meaning of the word is defined there in our text. He called it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. It was a word, Ebenezer simply means the stone of of hell. So he set up a memorial stone and he said, this is where God helped us. Now that stone would serve two purposes in their life. For one, it would, what I would call, soften their heart. It would be a token of how good God had been to them. They had been a people that needed help. They had been a people that needed God. And God had Help them. And when Samuel set that stone up, it would reinforce in the hearts of the people how good God had been and how God had helped them, and it would make them grateful. It would soften their heart and humble their hearts before God in gratitude for what God had done. Someone said, "Blessings, our blessings can either go to our head or to our heart. 
If they go to our head, they'll make us haughty. But if they go to our heart, they'll make us humble. And you know what everyone I was all to do today? Listen, there are all of us. There have been times in our life we needed God. Isn't that right? There have been times we needed God to help us. There have been times it may have been over there in the intensive care unit. It may have been in a waiting room of the intensive care. It may have been at a funeral home. It may have been an accident. It may have been with a child. But there have been times that we needed God to help us. And listen, time and time and time again, God has been our help. Tell you what we ought to do. We ought to raise an Ebenezer stone to say, Thank God for your help. Thank God for what you've done for us. It would soften their hearts. But second of all, it would strengthen their hearts. Years would go by, and there would be that old rock out in the field. And I could imagine a little boy saying, Mama, what's that rock over there with the word Ebenezer on it? And the mama would tell him about how when they needed God, and when they were in a dark situation, desperate, distressing hour, God helped them. And she would tell that story. And that little child would learn by that stone that God was a God that helped people. And I'm sure they would beca- there would come dark days in their lives and distressing days in their life. but every time they saw that Ebenezer stone, it would remind them of how God had helped them. And it would remind them that if God helped them in the past, that he could help them and he would help them in the present. I look back over my life, and I'd have to say there's a lot of places where I raised some Ebenezer stones. And I look back at those times, and I see how God met my need here and how God worked here and how God blessed here and how God helped me here. You know what it does today? It encourages me and reminds me that my God is a present help in trouble and that my God is able to meet my needs today. Some of you ought to raise an Ebenezer stone. This service today, just like Samuel, he raised an Ebenezer stone. You know what some of y'all to do? Y'all to raise, raise an Ebenezer stone in this very service. Y'all to raise an Ebenezer stone in this place where this is a place you come back to God. This ought to be the service where you come back. You saved, but you've been away from God. This ought to be the place that you come back to God and get right with God, get back into fellowship with God, get back where God can bless you again. You ought to come back. In fact, some of you ought to raise an Ebenezer stone in this service day where you come to Christ, where you realize that you are lost and realize if you don't get saved, you'll die in your sins and go to hell, and that Jesus Christ has paid the price that you might be saved. And you ought to come today. This ought to be the place. You raise an Ebenezer stone. Here is where God saved me by His grace. There's a lot of you today there's a lot of Ebenezer stones down here where you came. Some of you came this way. You got right, God. Brother Ken, right there's where I knelt when I got right. Right there's where I knelt when I got right. Right there's where I was kneeling when I got right. A lot of Ebenezer stones down here today. And I'll be a few more folks today all to come say, I want to get right with God. Tell you what, I hunger for the day when we can raise an Ebenezer stone here and say this is the place where God moved in His people. And where God came and the boundaries of our ordinariness. And he did something that only can be explained by God. God sent revival. That's what I'm praying for. I'd like to see the day. I thank God for every mercy drop we've enjoyed. I thank God for every drop of grace that we've experienced. But I'm not looking for drops. I'm looking for showers of blessing. And all the day when we could raise up an Ebenezer stone and say this is where God paid us a visit. This is where God sent revival. This is where God did something. And some of you today ought to come and say, Dear God, I need your help. 
And you'll be able to leave this altar saying, Hither by thy help I have come. Letting God meet your need. Ebenezer, God helping you. And stand their feet, please. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Oh, Robert Robinson wrote, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. It was a place of repentance. It was a place of revival. It was a place of remembrance. What about you today? What about you? What about you? Are you right with the Lord? Are you away from God? You ought to come. If you're not, if you're away, if you're away from God, not living God, this ought to be the day. You ought to come. You ought to come right here to this place. Right here. Raise your Ebenezer. Come back to God today. Come back to the Lord. Some of you ought to come and say, Oh God, Lord, I want you to manifest your power and I want you to move in our hearts. God, I hunger for revival. God, I long for the day that we can raise an Ebenezer stone of when God sent revival. Some of you ought to come today and say, God, I need your help. God, I need your help. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to make it. God, I don't know how to handle this. I need your help. Here's the good news. Somewhere probably buried under several feet of sand and dirt is an old rock. And if archaeologists could ever find it, they would find somewhere maybe the word Ebenezer. Put up there years ago by people that are helped by God. That stone may not be visible to us today. It may not stand today. But I tell you what, the story here is in the book. And this story here reminds us that if God helped them, God help us. And the same God that helped them in the past in their dark time is the same God that will be our God. As the psalmist said, he is a very present help in the time of trouble. You ought to come today. Let God help you. Help you with what you're going through. Help you for what you're dealing with. Help you for what, with what you're facing. Let God help you today. He is a God of help. Father, in Jesus' name, Samuel raised a memorial stone. That became a very special place for the children of Israel. Somewhere between a, a little town of Mizba and a little hill that was shaped like a tooth, God, you did something real special for them, and they never forgot it. They even put up a stone as a memorial to symbolize how important it was what you did for them. It was a place where they came back to you and got right as a special day in their life when they came back to God. It was special because it was there that God revival came. God, it was a place where you did extraordinary things in their life. And the things of God once again became priorities in their life. That was special. That was a special place. Revival came. And Lord, they would never forget how you helped them and how you delivered them and what you did for them. And the years go, as the years would pass, many, many times their heart would be encouraged at a glance of an old stone standing in a field reminding them that God had been their helper. Father, we come to you this morning. Father, we do pray today there'll be somebody that'll come back to you today, somebody that's away from God, somebody that's unsaved.
Father, we do pray today that you would set within our hearts and we know that revival is something that you must do. It's not what I can promote, work up, or bring to pass. But dear God, just to share this word and just remind the people, trusting dear God, that maybe you'll take this moment and put a seed in our heart that one day will give birth to a moving of God in this place. And we'll be able to say, here's where God did something unusual in our midst, in our presence. Father, I pray today, help somebody. Help somebody. They, Lord, just like the children of Israel that needed you, or they would have been defeated if it hadn't been for you, but you helped them. Help somebody today. Help somebody with their burden. Help somebody with their need. Help somebody with their decision. Help somebody with their trial. Help somebody, Lord, with the thing they're struggling with. Help them today. Be God. Be the Ebenezer in their life, the God of help. We'll thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.